Well, welcome back to It's Still Good on Tuesday. We are glad that you're along with us again today as we continue uh, just kind of in a different kind of series. And we're actually taking some time to rehash a little bit of the things that came out of the sermon on uh, last Sunday. And we are honored today to have along with us uh, in this program Darren Dunham. Darren is our prime minister at Fruit Cove Baptist Church. He is the leader of our uh, fearless uh, senior adult ministry and has done, a, in fact, I think he is uh, on record the youngest senior adult we have in the church right now and uh, doing a phenomenal job. Our folks love him and we're glad you're with us today, brother. We're enjoying, to, looking forward to having your input as we go. It's a here. pleasure to be here. It's an honor. Good. Well, we're glad you're here, and uh, we'll be turning to Titus chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 11 today. And uh, you guys... uh, I know may have some questions. A few things came out of this. I, I preached last night at a pastor's event in Sanford, okay, and uh, and and just kind of brought basically the same message that I preached here yesterday morning. And it was it's interesting how this lands in a group of pastors versus in a church, even though it's the same text. It's mm-hmm. uh, just a different spin and how they hear it. You know, the entire, and this is the thing we have to keep in mind, the entire book of Titus, we were talking about this a moment ago in the pre-program here, uh, the entire book of Titus is a letter written to a pastor. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually not the book of Titus as if Titus wrote it. Titus is not the author of the letter. He's right. receiving the letter from Paul. And and I can imagine as a young pastor uh, dropped into a world that is very different and very hostile toward the gospel that he probably had this wadded up and walked around with it all the time. I mean, he was having to look down. What did Paul say about this situation? You know, I would think this was something that was kind of a lifeblood circumstance for Titus to deal with. But uh, as as I said yesterday, let me say this again. This particular segment, this this portion of Titus chapter 2, to me, is the high point of the letter. In fact, it's one of the high points theologically of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's certainly, to me, it's, this is the pinnacle. Everything kind of builds up to this and then rolls back from this. Um, and uh, let me read it again, a great, great text. And let me just read that for us. In verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Therefore, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. All right, so Darren, we know that you are uh, on the spot here because we uh, ask you to come in and sit in on this particular podcast. 
without giving you a lot of context or a lot of preparation. Or foreknowledge. So, uh, or foreknowledge. <laughs> so, for time. Uh, it's nothing like just diving in. I'm ready. So, so for you and for that, uh, those folks that may be joining us for the very first time, we'll kind of all learn together. But we're just going to have a conversation like we would have if we could go out and get a cup of coffee after the, after the Sunday service and just say, okay, so what, what is this saying? What is this really saying to you? Or what about this text troubles you? So, Jason, you had some questions. Yeah, you might want to so, start with and- so it, you started with 15, but then you went back to 11 and then went up mm-hmm. to 14. Mm-hmm. And so, like, 15, I had this, it says, declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, and then let no one disregard you. So here's my question. Would Paul have said that to anybody and everybody in the church? Or is that a specific statement to Titus as a pastor, mm-hmm. as an overseer who is now you know, setting up other overseers, that's from chapter one and elders. Mm. Is that something that everyone should be the exhort rebuke with all authority? And where yeah. does that authority come from? Yeah. Because let's be honest, there's some church members that take that command a little too seriously. <laughs> um, they're, they're too much, you know, we always get the email, the you know, that afternoon or something like that. You didn't do this, or I thought this would have been better. You know, there's always those. Um, no. But then the other thing is also, there's other church members, and we'll even say pastors, that have turned laissez-faire with, mm-hmm. you know, exhorting and rebuking, mm-hmm. where some pastors, I think, would almost like just want to skip that verse because that's confrontational. and We don't like conflict. Right. So, so how do we like do conflict. that, though, yeah. in the church that's gracious, mm-hmm. but at the same time not? And again, is that for everybody or is that just the pastor? Mm, good question. So, you got a good answer? No. <laughs> Looks like he's like looking right at you, Darren. I don't know. But, no, that's, you know, I, I think, number one, um, I don't think anybody has a, has a spiritual gift of rebuking. No. There's not, no. Uh, you know, this is not like something that everybody ought to, you know, this is not something we just should be running around, sprinkling around on people uh, just because we get upset with a position or a yeah. situation. I think there are genuinely times... And maybe there are times in your life you know somebody personally whose life is just really, I mean, they're just mm-hmm. off the rails. They're really living out of line. And, and occasionally a friend coming alongside that person and putting their arm around them and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say something to you about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, you know this is not right. You know the way you're treating your wife is not the way you should treat a wife. You know that... Uh, the way you're doing this is not the way the Bible would say that, and 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 I think you can you can genuinely rebuke a brother, or sister. I think if you enjoy doing it, you're probably wrong. Mm-hmm. That's fair. And, and I don't know That's of good. any pastor that enjoys a message where you have to rebuke people, even a congregation in general, mm-hmm. those kind of things. So I think that the measuring, you know, the the internal measurements you should use. Should I rebuke a person? Well, does it make you happier? Make you say, "Well, I want to tell them up." Okay, then probably don't do it. Yeah, you know, because you're not going to do it in the right spirit, and mm-hmm. therefore it's not going to be effective. But uh, it, it seems contrary yeah. to human nature. But <clears throat> you know, if rebuking is done in a godly way, it can be an expression of love because it shows a deep interest in uh, in another human being if they choose to receive it in that way. It also can it can bring peace to incredibly tumultuous situations where there's just angst and conflict and done rightly, it could lead to, to a sense of peace too. Mm-hmm. But the spirit of it, as, yeah. you, as, you, yeah. as you say, Pastor, is pretty critical. Well, I think, and I think we have to be careful because, you know, Titus, I mean, Titus 
the first and second Timothy mm-hmm. uh, are called the pastoral epistles. They mm-hmm. are written from Paul to pastors. Mm-hmm. You know, so you've got Titus and Timothy as pastors that are receiving these letters. You can't you can't just kind of disregard half the letter because well that's just for pastors. You know, now this word is very clear, declare these things. I mean, this was very clearly from Paul to Timothy or to Titus, a, an encouragement to hey, lean into this, Timothy. You know, this mm-hmm. kind of stuff, you need to make sure you do this, you're saying these things, uh, you're rebuking those who are not paying attention to this. And and that that's very to me, verse fifteen is very directly direct you know, shot at pastors. There's yeah, no I question. think so. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have some you know, more larger principle application to people who are not pastors. I mean, I think yeah. there's a possibility. And I think, you know, what we, we kind of got into this a little bit in last episode because the last episode was, you know, 2, 1 through 10, and it's all about, you know, the older men exhorting yes, the younger men. Right, and, right, and it was, right. all right, church is family. And so, you know, if my brother is out of line, I'm going to approach him as my brother out of line. It's not that I'm coming down on him. It's I want to see my brother yeah. redeemed. I want right. to see the family mended. Right. But if he has made some decision or has some sort of lifestyle problem, you know, we're going to do that, I would say, graciously, you know, in a way that is redemptive. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, some some are just not that good at that. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, I mean, it's, and some of this is, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm kind of an advocate for, uh, pastor kind of becomes the spiritual father of the church. Yeah, Padre yes. Tim, that's right. Well, I get called Father Tim a lot. All the time. You've got a lot of folk coming out of Catholic backgrounds, and, they, and, and I get referred to as Father Tim all the time. All the time. But, uh, but you know, and, and that's okay. I don't mind. I'm Grandfather Tim now. But, I, you know, I guess, you know, but it's not a bad thing if we understand that really the church is a family. Yeah. And if we start relating to each other as if that were the case, that, mm-hmm. that really and truly we take right. that seriously, that we are brothers and sisters. And if you rebuke a brother or sister in the same way you would rebuke your own flesh and blood brother or sister, mm-hmm. or if you rebuke your child in the same way that you would rebuke or re, you know uh, rebuke somebody in the church in the same way you'd rebuke a child, you know, there's a different tone and texture to that, and there's yeah. a different ability for that person to receive that in love versus you're being judgmental and just coming mm-hmm. down on them and being hard on them kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, I think that I think so. Really, to kind of broad brush answer your question, I think this is certainly first line. This is directed at pastors, but there's some application and overlap, I believe, for for uh, folks to hear and work with this too. We certainly need the exhortation. We need to encourage each other. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. But, but uh, you know, one of the things that uh, is very clear in Titus, the letter, and, and this has caused some people to say, what well, did Paul really write this? Because th- there's kind of an upside-down world thing happening here with, with Titus in that Paul usually, like in Ephesians, Paul begins with three chapters of heavy-duty theology. Mm-hmm. He drops doctrine mm-hmm. on the church. And then, right. verses 4 through 6, let me unpack this and tell you what this means. <laughs> so everything gets interpreted through the lens of that doctrine that he just laid out. Right. All right, it's, it's true in Romans, it's true in other books too. But here, we get the application. Right. And then he gives us the doctrinal, the doctrinal foundation for that. So verses 11 through 15 are actually the doctrinal foundation for what you preached last week, 
in verses 1 through 10. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the whole thing starts out with, in verse 1, it says, teach sound doctrine, uh, and then do these things. Right. And then he tells us what the sound doctrine is. So he gives us the theological piece of that after the fact, and he does the same thing in chapter 3. Yeah. So it starts with the more practical application, then it rolls into the theological text. Yeah. But, uh, but I think, you know, we really hit some big theological bumps beginning in, in verse 11. Um, where it says the grace of God has appeared, and that's basically, I mean, that's just a wonderful, uh, again, I use the term epiphany. That's a uh, kind of a Christmas term, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the, he, he, has, he has epiphany, the grace of God has epiphanied, mm-hmm. uh, has appeared to us, and, and literally more than just a flash of appearance, but it's more a, you know, he showed up in Jesus. The incarnation is an epiphany of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so we have that. The incarnation mm-hmm. is one, I mean, you just start listing out the, the theological pieces of it that are in this text, and that's one. And, and the second thing he talks about is bringing salvation for all people. Now that's where we really hit a speed bump. All right, so we've got to slow down there a little bit and go, okay, so what, what is this saying? Is this, it sounds like, it sounds like it's advocating. I mean, when you read it, face value, you don't put any context around it. Uh, you don't pull any other theological pieces in from anywhere else in the book. It just said, everybody's going to get saved. Yeah, universalism. And, and I mean, I, we know, we know that that's not what it means. But how do we know that? Well, we only know that because we're importing what we know to the text. All right, so mm-hmm. if we're just ex- really truly exegeting, meaning we're just going to look at this is what it says, what well, it says, the grace of God is bringing salvation to all people, uh, or, the, or what's the other text, it, is it in Peter, where he says, you know, it's not God's will that any should perish, but right. all should come to repentance. So if you just read these standalone verses, you could create a doctrine right. of universalism. And, you know, basically there's three big isms three big three big ideas about how salvation comes about one is universalism and universalism is probably the most prominent position today among listen among more and more christian people mm-hmm. we talked about this two weeks ago three weeks ago on the podcast the uh, the heresies that are becoming prevalent in southern baptist churches one mm-hmm. of the main heresies is that jesus is not exclusively the way to salvation. Right. That Jesus is not the only way to salvation. By the way, that stat was for pastors who said that, not the people. And that was pastors, that's right. Yeah, that was evangelical pastors. pastors. So So that's what they're preaching. That was the same reaction that Dan and I had. He said, he dropped that. We're like, what? Wait, no. No, that's for those who are preaching and who have been to, to seminary and who who are reading, you know, they should know these things and they're the ones that are teaching this. Wow. And that is just... Attacking the foundation in, of the yeah, gospel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John Hick, who's a very prominent theologian, very liberal theologian, said that most New Testament scholars today do not believe that Jesus, the historical Historic Jesus. individual, claimed to be God incarnate. Hmm. Most New Testament scholars today believe that Jesus, the historic individual Jesus, did not claim to be God incarnate. So... 
you know, this is and and Hick is a is a voice that's listened to. He's he's quite yeah. you know well regarded. Um, it's not a hard message to sell, though. Universalism is... Well, it's very kind. It's very yes. fair. It seems like, well, everybody's going to get the same thing, so right. you yeah. can't... No conflict. There, everybody can get on Nobody board. can make the charge that, well, you guys are just narrow-minded, bigoted, unfair, right. you know. Uh, you know, you got your own little exclusivistic program going on here. Yeah. And it's a really hard... You know, I get it that it's a really hard thing... But I mean, for that, people to defend right now. But that's the foundation of Christianity. It they is, came into yeah, a universalistic yeah. uh, society where yeah. Greece, and, like you know, with um, Alexander the Great, and then with the Romans, that they just tried to make every god all the same god. Mm-hmm. It was they they mm-hmm. they swapped out names, they swapped out temples. It was this person, but all the, all the different names, but it's the same guy. Mm-hmm. And so it was. I mean, that's the story of Acts seventeen in book in in. in Athens, you know, it's just Jesus among many gods. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just an option to get there. And, but, I mean, why could, I just, mm, I get so frustrated. I'm like, <laughs> how could you even say that when obviously in order for them to even be persecuted, like they were historically, they would have had to make exclusive claims. Otherwise, no one would get mad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so, I just, well, just and I think, I think too, you know, and, and I'm beating up a man that's not here. But, you know, to, to take that position on, you know, I would completely disagree that Jesus did oh, yeah. in several places very clearly affirm himself. I, in fact, we just went through the four Gospels on Wednesday night, and, and I, was, I, I really put those kind of things in bold print as we went through this series just to say, right here, he says mm-hmm. he's God. Mm-hmm. You know, right here, there's no other way to interpret or to understand this than to say Jesus just claimed to be God. In that, mm-hmm. and and this was, you know, what infuriated the Jews was not so much his claim to be a Messiah or the Messiah. It was the, his claim to be God. That was mm-hmm. that was, you know, who do you think you are? Right. Yeah. You know, you, you said, you know, before Abraham was, I am. Who mm-hmm. do, who did he just claim to be? He right. didn't just he didn't just say, well, I'm a religious leader and I was alive before Abraham. He didn't say that. He mm-hmm. said before Abraham existed, I was. I existed. And that's a unique feature of Christianity, yeah. too, because when you look at world religions, uh, not a lot of the, the deities or gods that people follow made the claim uh, of, right. of being God. Right. And, right. and Christianity has that unique feature where, the, where Jesus, who we follow, um, unapologetically made that, that claim. Yeah. That's an important distinction. Well, and, and, the, and the two things that he continued to do to prove, I mean, it's it's one thing for if, if you came to work tomorrow and you said uh, before we started staff meeting, you said, "Ladies and gentlemen, I would just like for you to know that God that I that it was revealed to me last night. I am God." Um, yeah, I'm just I, I'm, I'm picturing the say, fallout. I am too. Right? I, I, no, I, I'm trying. To know. That would be a very uh, short career. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so so you know, I, I don't expect that everybody in the room would automatically fall down on their knees and begin to worship no. uh, the, the new God, Darren. I, I think that we would say, well, prove it, dude. You're God. Yeah. Do a miracle. Uh, you're God, but wow, you know, if I talked to your wife, would she tell me that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's, but, you know, but, but again, here's Jesus living. He didn't just live. He didn't just live a public life that was really spotless. I mean, he, he did, it was, but that wasn't enough. 
he lived with 12 guys for three years. Mm-hmm. And he pulled guys around him from every political and religious stripe, every kind of person around him to say, watch me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, anybody, listen, anybody can pull it off on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, anybody can be good for two hours. Yeah. But uh, follow me around all week. Mm-hmm. And how does that look? And what does that look like? You know, so here's Jesus for three years. And any of those guys, when he said, well, you know, I, I'm God, they were struggling with that too, but they couldn't say, no, you're not, you sin. Right. Yeah. And it's fun to see how, the, in, in the case of the disciples, how they came to these moments of truth at different times in, the, yeah. in their journey. My, one of my favorite all-time stories is, is Thomas after yeah. the resurrection, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. where you get this idea <laughs> that that was it. That was the moment where he falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my yeah. God. Yeah. And well, see, and that's the big thing. Because th- here's what they all knew, even even the ones that weren't really theologically astute. God didn't die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How can yeah. God be born? Wait, How can God wait. die? You died. How can you yeah. be God? Right. right. Yeah. So right. so the big challenge was okay. Then if, then if he wasn't God, he'd still be dead. That's right. Right. That's right. So, but anyway, you know this this is the thing. It's 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 not. It's a ridiculous claim on its face just because there are a number of places I believe in the Gospels and other places throughout the New Testament although he would say well the New Testament letters are this is the church creating a, you know making Jesus into a God mm-hmm. he never claimed that for himself but he did he did yeah, yeah. you know yeah. If, if the documents that we have in the Gospels are accurate documents mm-hmm. which we believe they are Jesus did claim that he was God and it's yeah. been a, a battle for the church since its yeah. inception. Oh, yeah. They've been fighting yeah. this. I mean, C.S. Lewis, you know, had to had to come out and talk about, you know, either Jesus is a madman, mm-hmm. you know, or he is a crazy man, mm-hmm. or he is who he claimed to be. Mm-hmm. You can't say, oh, he's just a good rabbi or he's just a good teacher. Yeah. Um, logically, that doesn't fit. You have yeah. to make you have to abide by one of those three different perspectives yeah. on him. Yeah, I mean, but, anyway, the, but the basis of universalism is the claim that Jesus is not God, and and therefore, you know, he. I mean, any number of religions can be salvific. They can any any number of religious systems can save you. The second position is very popular: is inclusivism. Inclusivism basically means you don't have to have a religion uh, to save you. All you need is to have a good conscience, mm-hmm. be a good person, uh, or you know your response uh, to God's revelation of Himself in nature, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. inside of you through your conscience. If you respond well to that, then God's going to say that's that's enough. That's good. Yeah. Because maybe you grew up on the island of Piggy Piggy in the South Pacific, and you know nobody ever wrote the Bible in your language, and you lived out there by yourself your whole life. Well, what's going to happen to that guy? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was Platt, David Platt, took that analogy on a bunch yeah. of years ago in one of his yep. books, you know, and talked about the fact. He said, well, the, you know, basic, the basic failure of that premise is that that person on the island is an innocent person. Right. Because, you know, right. you know, the Bible pretty clearly says we're not, none of us are innocent. Yeah. Right. So, you know, the assumption is, well, this poor innocent person out here on this island, how would he, you know, why, mm-hmm. why should he not get to go to heaven because he lived on an island by himself? Right. You know. But, uh, but inclusivism basically says if your conscience is good toward people yeah. and if you see God in nature, if you see God in some other uh, 
revelation of creation of some sort, then then that is that is as good as faith. That's that's the same thing. Yeah. And that's also that's actually a very a, you know that that's where a lot of the new age religions come. Mm-hmm. In. You know, it's just well, you don't have to follow. You don't Be have true to have yourself. A, a religious yeah. system, and I'm and I would say you don't. No, you don't have to have a religious system. You have to have a relationship with Jesus. You don't need a system, but you're going to, you know, you're going to create a system in your mind of some sort. You know, you just go. We we go ahead. We are attracted to. Okay, well, I'm going to go to church because they're saying the same thing I believe in here. So, you know, whatever else we have to build around that. But the bottom line is they believe what I believe. They say what I say. They celebrate what I celebrate. I'm going to go with them. Yeah. And, and you know, so it doesn't, the church doesn't save you, but it gives you a place to, to grow in what you believe and to walk with people that believe the same thing. Inclusivism basically says I don't need nothing or nobody. You know, I can mm-hmm. be out in nature. I can be, you know, living by myself. I don't ever have to relate to other people. I don't have to be with other people. And God's just going to be okay with me because I'm an yeah. okay person. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's all about, inclusivism is all about um, the conscience and and that you're doing right by yourself and by yes. God, if there is one even. Yes. And uh, I actually read a essay back in college and I wrote a response essay to it where they compared three different people, one being Jonathan Edwards, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. famous preacher. The next was Heinrich Himmler of the SS, <laughs> uh, the Nazi Germany, and then Tuck, Huck, Huck Finn. Those, those oh, were the three. And to them, the, this author said that Jonathan Edwards was the worst because he had no guilty conscience about saying that sinners are going to hell because they won't repent. Versus Himmler was the best because he was completely clear conscience for what he was mm-hmm. doing. To which I'm mm-hmm. like, he's responsible for the death of millions of Jews. How? Mm-hmm. My response was like, we're not judged based upon our motives and our conscience. We're judged based upon our actions and what we do. And I feel like a lot of Christians, especially for me in student ministry, they they, they focus more on like, was he a bad person or something like that? I'm like, no, no, no. It's, did he murder somebody? Then he's guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. It's not like, well, you did 99% of your life was great, but yeah, this one thing, ah, we'll just... We'll just disregard it. It's no, it's you're judged based upon the sins you commit. And that's where it starts at. And so that's that's the unraveling though of inclusivism. They have to reckon with their sin. Yeah. And, and neither and really neither inclusivism or universalism deal with guilt. Right. They don't talk about guilt because they don't talk about sin. Sin right. doesn't matter. Sin's really a, not that great of consequence. So uh so when we're looking at Titus 2.11, the nuanced interpretation should be the salvation is available to all. And that's, and that's really a better interpretation mm-hmm. of the verse. Right. But again, it's, uh, there's reasons that are beyond me right. why you know, uh, translations do what they do with this. But, but the bottom line is this is not intended to say that you know, God's going to save everybody. Right, Although, everybody's got yeah, a free pass. As, as, yeah. as fun as that sounds to some people. You know, what we the position we have sounds harsh, but it's true. Uh, we embrace a position called exclusivism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are exclusivistic. If you are a Protestant evangelical, you are an exclusivistic person, basically meaning if you do not know Jesus Christ or if you do not seek to come to God through Jesus Christ, you won't make it. You won't make it to God, and it doesn't matter what your conscience is mm-hmm. like, or what your nature is like, or 
Well, and truth by its nature is exclusive. It is. It is. You can't have something be true and false at the same time. So it is, by by philosophical nature, Mm -hmm. it's it's exclusivistic. But anyway, those are words that nobody wants to deal with on Tuesday. But, (laughs) but, you know, they're they're important terms, and they really kind of help us define what we're dealing with here. But And why this is an important question, because, again, a lot of people are falling off the edge in, yeah. in just false thinking about mm-hmm. this. They're in a place where they're trying to they're trying to make Christianity more palatable to the world. Yeah. They're trying to make you know, to make it okay, you know, well what if my friend is, you know, he, he believes in Jesus and, and I had a you know, I've I've used this story a couple of times before. But I had a guy who literally uh, I mean came from a really bad place and, and really and got to a very good place and got to a place where he, you know, he, he had prayed in, in, in my study. He prayed to receive Jesus as Savior. And then a few days later, he came back to me and said, let me ask you something. If I'm going to be a Christian, do I have to believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? And I, asked, I said, well, let me, let me ask you a really obvious question. What else do you believe there could be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, what about a person that just, you know, that's just a really nice person, and they, you know, they've never hurt anybody, and they, you know, they're good to their family, and they're good citizens, and they're good people, and, you know, would God reject that person?" I said, "If they don't know Jesus, yes." But I said, "Jesus is available for anybody, mm-hmm. so it's not like I said I would agree with you that it would sound unfair if Jesus was only made available to a few people." But the reality is he's made available to every person. So anybody can receive that. That, that makes it fair right. because anybody can receive right. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said, well, if, if, if I have to believe that, then I'm not a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I uh, said, so, well, I'm pretty sure you need to be settled on that. I, you know. And it made me step back and think, well, do you really have to believe that to be a Christian? Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, you have to. I mean, because Jesus said that. You know, I am the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father but by me. So it's like, it's there, it's there. But, you know. So you're basically saying Jesus was wrong here. Either he lied deliberately or he didn't know better. Either way, you're saying Jesus isn't God if he would make a statement like that. And either know it was wrong and say it anyway or not know any better, which basically means he'd just be crazy. Yeah. So, uh, and it's hard to it's hard to keep professing this message in, in a culture that that doesn't want to hear that. It's um, it's difficult. I see a tension in in Titus two, and I know Pastor Tim has brought it up both on Sunday and then also uh, in the midweek, where there's we rightfully emphasize grace, you know, um, in our theology. But here in Titus, we do see the call to to a godly mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. We don't always okay. emphasize that. There's a there's a tension there in our Christian. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's go there. You're you're going into verse twelve. Let's okay. Go ahead, let's go ahead and do that. Really, uh, verse twelve, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the mm. present age. Okay, so. So now we go from our belief system to our our lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and and you know again it's very clear and, and I, we have to be really careful. You know we 
legalism is creating rules and regulations without the context of theology. Yeah. Mm. So I say, Darren, you should never wear a blue shirt again because real Christians don't wear blue shirts. Well, I have created a rule that you have to follow as your pastor that has no basis in theology. Why? Well, because I don't like blue shirts. No, I do, but (laughs) just for the sake of the illustration, I don't like blue shirts, and therefore you're wrong for wearing a blue shirt. Uh, now, let me just say that that makes as much sense as some of the clothing rules that some churches have tacked up as mm-hmm. part of their mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. requirements for entry. I, I talked to a woman a number of years ago that started coming to church here. She had been going to a church that's now closed down uh, in another area. And uh, she told me, she said, I, she said, I was really faithful in this church. She said, you know, and, and I, I think she'd been divorced. But she said, I'm, I work at a card store in the mall. And I end up having to climb ladders and get stuff down. So she said, I wore slacks to work and didn't have time to clean up and go home and change before the church service started. Mm. So I wore slacks. They wouldn't let me in the sanctuary. Mm. So I'm thinking, okay, so what are we doing wrong here, folks? You know, right. I mean, does Jesus really care whether this woman has slacks on or a dress? You know, of course yeah. not. Does that really matter? But again... We tack up these rules. There's no theological context to them. Now, what Paul does is Paul sets the theological theme here. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay, the grace of God has appeared uh, and bringing, you know, bringing salvation to all people. And the grace of God, this is interesting the way this is phrased. The grace of God is teaching us. Mm-hmm. The grace of God is training us. Now, a couple of things on that. Number one, I think it's interesting that he says the grace of God. Now, I think that's probably a reference to the person of the grace, which is Jesus. But, mm-hmm. but at any rate, the other side of that is we have to be taught how to renounce ungodliness, mm-hmm. how to embrace godliness. We have to be taught. This is not something that just automatically, this is, this is the necessity of discipleship. We have to disciple people. We have to teach people because obviously right here, it's not an automatic thing. You don't just wake up the next morning and go, oh, I know. You know, uh, you know, we have people that sometimes struggle to come to campus. They don't know how to act, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't know what to wear. They don't know how to be. And, I'm, you know, I've, I've gone to, to gyms, you know, and, and I'm not a gym person. You know, I'm just not, I don't belong, you know, I'm just, gyms have always intimidated me. I'm thinking, I need them. But I just, oh, man, how do you, what do you do? How do you get in? And, you know, and when you get in, gyms have laws, rules. Mm-hmm. Wipe this down. You mm-hmm. Get this. Put this mm-hmm. back. Uh, don't wear these kind of clothes. You can't wear street clothes in to to uh, be in the gym. I mean, there's there's right. a membership <coughs> issue. There, there's this is the if you're going to walk with us, right. this is how you're going to dress. This is how you're going to act. But somebody has to teach you that. Right. Mm-hmm. They either hand you a document and say, yeah. "Here are the rules. You need to follow these." Yeah. Or they put their arm around you and say, "Here's what you do, and here's what you don't do." So any kind of system, has, we have a set of kind of a bank of rules that we go, mm-hmm. well, we, you know, this is what we prefer. Now, we, we've tried, we tried over the years to loosen up on this. I've, I've told people for years, I mean, it wasn't that many years ago I wore a tie on Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. Pastor Darren. <laughs> I wore a tie on Wednesday night. 
And and I was the last I was the last man standing in this church to wear ties. That's I mean, true. I was the he last was. person. Yeah, <laughs> he was. I was not going to give up my ties, and I finally did. And it was hard, you know. Because I thought I always wore, you know, you always wear a tie when you go to church. That's just what you do. And not anymore, you know. And and so okay, well that's that's an unnecessary rule. That was just putting a burden on myself that I didn't have to have. But I did it because I thought I was supposed to. So, uh, what's well, the attraction to legalism? Why? Are, why are we subtly pulled uh, to it? Wow. Mm. I'm going to answer this Go with, ahead, a, jump in on that. with a Tim quote. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. I'm okay. ready. I've been waiting. All right. So this is something that Tim has said to me, especially when I'm doing uh, parent counseling or anything like that. As rules without relationship leads to rebellion. Mm. I've actually flipped it in as well. It works just the other way. Relationship without rules leads to rebellion. And so many parents try to do both, where one is just all rules, but not a relationship. That's legalism. License is relationship, but no rules. We just get to do whatever we want. Right. And that it, it takes both to have that balanced yeah. life in Christ. So did I did I quote you right? That's good, man. Bam, that'll man, preach, oh, right? Yeah. Mm. You you quoted me and expanded <laughs> it, so that's even better. I like that. But you know, legalism is, and, and this was my definition a long time ago. Legalism is quantifying righteousness. We want, we want to count. Well, there's ten commandments. I keep eight of them. You know, we can quantify righteousness. We we want to know how many times did you come to church? Well, a real Christian comes three times a month. Used to be three times a week. Yeah, I was about to say. I was about to say. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, no, I'm a really, I'm a great Christian. I come three times a month. You know, what do we want? We want to know. I want you to know. I'm that kind of mm-hmm. Christian. Oh no, I'm a I'm a six time a month attender. <laughs> wow, you know. Yeah. So all of a sudden, you know, we but we now we know how to quantify. Right. We know where to put you on the scale. We know where to put which box mm-hmm. to put you in. Well, you're the hyper spiritual person. He goes to church six times a month. You know. Uh, Not if you ask my kids, I'm here. Too much. <laughs> I'm here too much. I spend too much time up here. Well, there's that. Yeah, I live there, but. Uh, but, you know, I think that's part of it. But, I, you know, what we see over and over again, and this is, you know, this was what happened. I mean, the Pharisees were kind of pulling rules out of the air, mm-hmm. so to speak, that they could manage, that they could handle. They were okay to keep, but it would be hard for you. So, therefore, they're quantifying their righteousness. How righteous, how much of it, you know, I mean, they even had a name for you, Pharisee, mm-hmm. because you basically were yeah. able to keep a level of the laws that normal people do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were res- regarded for that. They were respected. Yeah. They, they were rule keepers. That's what they were. Pharisees were rule keepers. They just, you know, they just, we know the law. We, we can, you know, we can, we can walk through the minutia of this. We know that you're not supposed to do that. And they can come up to you and tell you, now you know you're not supposed to. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. You know, they, we, we don't do that now, but, you no. know, what we have to realize is they, you, they used to be bragging rights. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a Pharisee. Yeah. Well, you do that now, you think, oh, you are. You know? Yeah, you are, that's right. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, th- th- this, is not, this is not legalism, what's being talked about here. Well, Paul yeah. stumped. And it's interesting to me that he does not specify. What, what is ungodliness? What does it mean to be ungodly? He didn't say, you know, here's these three yeah, things. he didn't give you a list. He does not specify what ungodliness is. Now, there's an assumption here that Titus would know, oh, yeah, ungodliness, I know what mm-hmm. that looks like. And, and instead be, you know, self-controlled. Well, we kind of know what that looks like. But, again, that's a very generic, it's a very broad 
brush kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes legalism gets really into the weeds and into the real specific kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of defining this is what righteousness really is and what the right thing is. So let me, since we're here parked on 12, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to just go ahead and jump in. We got a comment uh, this past Sunday from one of our listeners, Matt, who then says, can you please expand on worldly passions? And his question was, right here out of 12, when does it become bad, I guess, if you will? Like, you know, it's sort of like, are are my hobbies a worldly passion? Because I'm very passionate about it. But, you know, and so I was like, all right, so... I told him I'd bring it up, yeah, so okay. here it is. Well, I would say in general, and you guys really chime in on this, I would say in general, no, that would not be a problem unless that idol has, or that hobby has become an idol to you. Mm-hmm. Now, if it begins to get in the place of the passion that you should have for the Lord, and you would rather pursue your hobby than pursue the Lord, mm-hmm. then now you are in an idolatrous situation, and that's a worldly passion that's mm-hmm. leading you in a bad place. But I think in general... The reference to worldly passions is those things. This this was in the, the ungodliness and worldly passion. Really, isn't though both of those words are very internal. Mm-hmm. This is your inner world. You know, this is your inner motivations. This is your inner thoughts. These are your inner desires. These are your inner emotions. This is not really relating to other people. This is this is how you are dealing with your own inner world. And then the other side, the being upright and being mm-hmm. self-controlled, uh, those are words that deal with your outer world. So the, these are this is kind of an inner outer kind of thing as well. You know, it's not just a, um, you know. I, I think both of those words are very internally oriented. What, what do y'all think? So for me, the way I I, I just started digging into it and. The, the worldly passions is kind of more like that carnal, mm-hmm. lustful passions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And actually, the, yeah. the, the journey began for me when I looked up self-controlled, and I'm just trying to dig in and look at the language. And, of course, it's sophronos, which is only used in this one verse, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool when it's the Greek word's only found in one situation, but it's also frustrating because you can't compare it, it to anything else, yeah, right? Yeah, There's no other context. Stuff, yeah. Because everywhere else that Paul says... Um, Self-control, like Ephesians 5, it's in Kratia, it's something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one's more of like the restraining of yourself. The sophronos is actually what the philosophers of the day would use to talk about someone who has pursued virtue. And their whole life is encaptured by this sophronos, this, this virtue. And so the worldly passions is the opposite of that, where you've disregarded the virtues and you've pursued after your lustful passions instead, or hedonism, as we would kind of consider it now. Yeah, and and I think that's more the inter- the 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 you know the turn of that phrase is more about what do you th- you know what do you spend your time thinking about what do you what do you mm-hmm. you know what do you inflame yourself over internally? So there's really not a specific. Yeah, it's you know, not an item. Four things don't do that. Don't think about these things. Yeah. Because if, you know the only if if you if you're on a diet, the only thing I have to do is say don't eat a hamburger, and all you're going to think about now for ten minutes is a hamburger. Hamburger. So you know you Thanks. don't want to put. Yeah. You're welcome. So you think about a hamburger. I'm right kind of hungry right now. Yeah. <laughs> but where you know, but so so it's interesting that Paul does not do those kinds of things always. You know, real specific. He just kind of says, don't be ungodly. Yeah. Don't be worldly, and you go, okay. 
And then the Holy Spirit begins to interpret personally and individually for you what that means. Because the passions that you deal with, that you deal with, are not the passions I deal with. Mm -hmm. So we've all got our own set of things. And rather than list all these things out, so you find yourself on the list there, you know, just this is the general rule. God will tell you which what that means to you, how that deals. You know, and if it's if your hobby is, you know, it's it's, you know, uh, you know, hobbies can can, are usually very innocent. They can also become very problematic Mm -hmm. in some ways. So, uh, you know, I I wouldn't say always carte blanche that it's always okay if it's a hobby. But I think that I think that for the most part, this is an inner world kind of deal that we're talking about, not what you do mm-hmm. with your spare time. Uh, but the other the other three pieces, the self-controlled, upright, godly, are very externally oriented, and it goes to again just kind of the analogy I was using yesterday of, you know, we need people who look like they have been rescued, they look like they've been saved, mm-hmm. so the people who are lost would at least know to go be like Jason. You know, be like you know, be like Darren. I mean, these guys have these guys have been snatched out of the river, so you know, live like them. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of the training is 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 not just hey, read this book, and read these rules, but read that life. You yeah. Know, walk with that person and and figure out how they are living their lives. And the so, motivation there too, I think, is important because why are we pursuing? Um, why do we care about? the status of our heart because God mm-hmm. cares about our yeah. heart. Um, it, it makes me for, think of Psalm uh, 51, you know, create in me a clean yeah. heart, O Lord, yeah. renew a right spirit within me. Why, though? Because we don't mm-hmm. want to be outside the presence of the Lord. Yeah. Um, so I think that comes back to that internal yeah. part that you were speaking mm-hmm. about, Pastor Tim. But it's, you know, the, the part that I pondered on this a lot was how does grace train us? How does grace teach us? How does grace disciple us? And it, and you know, and I mean, I, I could we can go to the we can go to the thought of you know if you sin today, that adds to the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross two thousand years ago. Now I've heard that particular kind of reference, you know. That that so it makes you feel bad. So right. it, it you know you you you've sinned against you know I've one of the worst times my dad and I had an issue. Uh, I mean he basically made it very clear to him that I had hurt him in what I had done. It didn't really bother me that I'd rebelled against him, mm-hmm. but when I realized that my rebellion had hurt him, uh, then I felt really terrible because I knew Dad loved me. Yeah, you know, and and that I did that in spite of that, it just really kind of broke me. So. So I think that here what we're talking about is if you understand the grace that God has given you, that's going to be a constraining force in your life. That's going mm-hmm. to be a restraining force in your life to make you want to do the right thing. So you ought to, you know, part of the reason we try to disciple people without a motivation, why do you why do you want to be discipled? Yeah. I want to be like Jesus. Why do you want to be like Jesus? Well, He's my savior. Okay, now we're getting someplace. Right. Now you have, you know, you have a motivation for doing this, not just I want to finish the course so I can say, Jason discipled me. Mm-hmm. Well, why do you want to do that? What, what's the motivation for that? So, yeah. again, sometimes it needs we need to think through the, to the end. What are we what are we moving toward here? Well, the grace of God is helping us understand what God has done for us. Mm-hmm. 
and therefore it provides guardrails for our lives. Well, you know, if, if, you, if you really walk in the grace of God, you're not going to go over here. You don't want to be an ungodly person. You don't want to be a person that looks like you don't believe this or that you don't appreciate this. You know, you don't want to be an ungodly person. You don't want to be a person who lives in a trash can in your mind, you know, of, of, of ungodly thoughts and passions, you know. So I want to, you know, so that provides mm-hmm. structure, a guardrail. Is that a word? Could we use that? Could we? I mean, so the way I, when I'm discipling somebody or, or even talking to parents who are dealing with, say, problematic behaviors with their kids is like, we don't want behavioral, you know, modification. Behavioral modification is entirely selfish-based. It's, I'm going to reward you for doing the right thing. So really, it's all about, I'm going to behave now so I can get what I want, so I can get the rewards that I crave, which, you know, on a very base level, that's somewhat okay. But, you know, ultimately in the Christian life, it's Ephesians 4, 13, that until we all attain unity in the faith the measurement of stature, which is the full measure of Christ. He's our standard. And so that's that's the aim and the trajectory of where we're all where we're all headed for maturity. Um, because I mean, that's even what we're gonna get into in thirteen is that we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, the the resurrection of ourselves. That's that's the goal is that one day we will be like him. Mm-hmm. And that's the aim. And so then the behavior changes Based upon that that yeah. new spiritual status mm-hmm. that we're aiming towards, not but, the other way around. But the other, the other piece up. of this too, and I agree with that. But the other piece of this too is, we want to be this. We want to be self-controlled, upright, godly. We don't want to be ungodly. We don't want to live in worldly passions. But again, because we want to be a witness for Jesus, we want to be people that look like we've been redeemed and cleaned up. Let's go down into verse fourteen. Uh, Jesus gave himself for us to to uh, purify us. You know, he wants to purify for himself people who are zealous for good works. Uh, he wants to, you know, he wants to redeem us from lawlessness. And mm-hmm. and, and so all of this packaged together, you know, what, what Jesus is wanting to do is, sh- is show the difference in our lives so people can see it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not just for your own self-satisfaction and pleasure. This is so people can see Oh, this is the difference that Jesus makes. This is the way a person who follows Jesus should live. This is mm-hmm. what they should sound like, talk like, and how they should act. So those things are in place. All right, speaking of verse 13, we better move on or we're not going to get to that. Uh, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our God, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, one of the problematic sections there, too, is... God and Savior, our great God and Savior. Sometimes I hear people talking about Jesus and separating, you know, and, and, and you know, almost presenting a picture that, you know, like here, you know, God and Jesus, two separate people. How do we deal, you know, this is the mm-hmm. Trinity again. We get mm-hmm. back into how do we understand the Trinity. And, uh, you know, and again, my understanding of Scripture is not that, when Christ returns, there, that there's going to be God the Father and God the Son coming back together. That's not what this is saying. Mm-hmm. That's a misunderstanding of that. But it's almost the way people think. Yep. They almost think of the Trinity as three. three. They are three persons. They are three distinct persons. They are three full persons, full God in mm-hmm. themselves, and yet they are one. 
the piece that we can't get our heads around is how does that happen? Right. You know, how can they become, how can they be, you know, if the three of us are three of us, how could we become one? Mm-hmm. Well, without losing, you know, Jason and Tim and Derek, you know, how do we, yeah. you know, how do we become one person in that? And we can't, humanly, we can't conceive of that. Mm-hmm. But this statement is a very clearly a statement that is designed to tie that Jesus and God are the same. This is not too different. You know, this is not, Jesus is not a, a person that is less than God in some way or second to God in some way. And that, uh, you know, God's having to come back with him to really bring the full force of the authority of the second coming. You know, this is, Jesus is God mm-hmm. who's coming, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So. Yeah, so in the middle school ministry, we've just now finished a series called Son of Man. And we go through the Gospels, and every time that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, we said, okay, what are the things around it that he used to describe that title? And, of course, it starts right out of Daniel 17, that prophecy where it's like, all right, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, right? Uh, Clothed in the majesty of God, but it's the Son of Man, it's Jesus. And so Jesus is very clear that he is God, that he is returning, that he is coming back. Um... But what, and, and really this kind of all got inspired. I think it was an article by Trevin Wax um, called The Rise of Arianism again. Yeah. And, and it's coming back. It's that, that there's God, this person, and then there's Jesus, but Jesus is not God. Jesus is still separate. And, and you were talking about, you know, that's very old debate. I mean, that's 300 and something AD, right? Mm-hmm. So very old debate. Mm-hmm. And that, that we tend to separate this human Jesus from deity God, but yeah. they are mm-hmm. one in the same. Well, and this is this was one of the heresies that that was covered in the LifeWay study. Yeah, uh, is is this rise of Arianism? Is this this you know this misunderstanding of the Trinity and yeah. how we think about it and talk about the Trinity? So, but, uh, yeah. I just think it's inherent in human nature to always try to to create this this unfathomable God in our own image, mm-hmm. and sometimes when we don't understand the Trinity. Appropriately, we historically people have gravitated to doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I don't quite understand this, so therefore I'm going to interpret this as because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's more comfortable for us. Yeah. I think is one of the challenges yeah. to it. Yeah. So this is one of uh, if I hear you right, Pastor Tim. This verse 13 is one of those uh, clear, and there's many, but one of those mm-hmm. verses that clearly points yes, that Jesus does. and God. It does, right. it yeah. does. But again, those who argue this will argue against this being a place because this is, again, the church after the fact, ah. looking back and saying yeah. that Jesus was God. So. Yeah. All right, well, listen, we want to take a moment before we close, again, to thank Darren for being with us on the podcast today. Give you a moment. You know, we kind of do a sponsorship as we go along <laughs> here, and uh, we're, we're looking for... Uh, Looking for paying sponsors if you want to use some budget money to, to, slip, us, to slip us a few dollars of and advertising. And now you know but, why you were really would you like to, <laughs> But would you like to, to, do, to uh, promote uh, the, the prime ministry here at Fruit Cove Baptist Church? I, I would. Um, um, we love the color blue, uh, senior adults. Uh, I'll just start by saying theme that. Color, the theme color. Oh, my goodness. Um, no, I, you know, it's not really a community that... that that you lead, um, it's a community that you're a part of, and it's been a it's just been an absolute pleasure to be uh, amongst uh, some of these saints of the church. Um, you know, I think we are 
we are starting to get on board with this idea as a community of what is our purpose. We are here good, good. on um, on Earth. If you're on Earth, then you have a purpose. God has uh, He wants to use you, and and we don't get a, a free pass on that, um, regardless of of age. But um, we do have some theme verses that kind of give us some direction, and, and Psalm seventy one is one of them, which talks about uh, in your older years to testify. Uh, to the faithfulness of God. Wow. So that is a key wow. theme of our identity nice. as a community. That is what we are to do. Is Because when you've gone through the ups and downs of life, and mm-hmm. if you experience mm-hmm. all this world can throw at you and all the pain that you can bear, but you see the faithfulness of the Lord uh, reemerging time and time again, that's a message that every generation needs to hear, uh, to be encouraged by. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's that's how we see ourselves and uh, and apply ourselves. So that's what we like to see ourselves and apply ourselves. So, um, yeah, just and, and, and the people here at Fruit Cove um, Baptist Church that are in that community just do a terrific job of, of um, displaying that. Um, Eager to do what is good, as I as I look down at the yeah, Titus two. Tell us for mm-hmm. good works. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, listen, you did a great job. We hear wonderful things about the ministry, and uh, excited to have you on board with us here. And glad to have you on board. Thank you for joining us today. For it's still good on Tuesday, and we hope to see you again next week. God bless you.